And now it's time for Dave's Disney View Podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all. But he understands its place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. So come along and take a listen to Dave's thoughts about the Walt Disney World Resorts and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On the last couple of podcasts, I presented to you some information and the attraction audio from Flight to the Moon and Mission to Mars. Now, one thing I didn't mention on the previous podcast was that the voice of Mr. Johnson and Tom Morrow was uh, actually George Walsh. George Walsh was a broadcaster who lived in California, so he was the authoritative voice that provided the mission control person who was explaining to you everything that was going on at the control center. Now, Mr. Walsh has an interesting side note to his history with the Walt Disney Company. Once he retired from broadcasting, he actually took a job working on Main Street in one of the candy stores in Disneyland. So kind of a funny little twist of fate there that that's what he wanted to do after he retired from his career in in broadcasting. But he did go on to voice uh, both of these characters and provided some of the other voices that you heard throughout the launch sequence and the ride. There were other voices that were used there as well. Uh, Most of them go uncredited or unknown at this point. I'm sure that someone will know who they are. But I was unable to find any information about who was who, so I'll just leave it as uncredited voices that work for Disney. By 1992, Disney had decided that the entire Mission to Mars attraction had become outdated. Yeah, it was really cool and kind of neat in the 1970s, but here it was almost 20 years later, and it really didn't fit anymore. Tomorrowland had become this dated place where you would go in and see different things that were the vision of tomorrow through yesterday's eyes. And it just didn't quite fit anymore. And with all the things that were changing in Tomorrowland, it made sense to have another weenie there, something that would draw people in. So Michael Eisner suggested that they close both both of the attractions in both Disneyland and Walt Disney World and come up with a replacement for it. So Eisner threw down essentially a gauntlet for the Imagineers. Come up with something that's more engaging, more entertaining, and more interesting, but do it in a budget that makes sense. We'd prefer not to gut the entire attraction and redo it. It would be easier if we just kind of redid it, rethemed it, and made it more interesting. So the Imagineers went about thinking of concepts, and one of the concepts they settled on was this idea of being Tomorrowland and being in the same location where Mission to Mars was, and also having previously housed the moon launch sequence, it would make sense to do some sort of space-themed thing where they could maybe meet an alien, have some sort of encounter with them or something. So the idea was struck. Now, going from that concept to actual reality took a fairly long time. There were a number of different things that they came up with, uh, concepts that were talked about, different things that came up, all kinds of things that they did. So over the course of the next almost two years, a lot of ideas were passed around. Some of them were really clever ideas. Some of them were not so good. Uh, Michael Eisner actually inserted himself into the process and actually had some say over what was going on. Marty Scalar had a lot of influence in it. And there was a lot of people who had some uh, input into the way the show was going to work. I was working there at the time, and I remember hearing some of the internal stories that we'd hear about. They were coming up with this story about how some alien was going to uh, enter the Magic Kingdom through that attraction. 
And they came up with some ideas, and most of them were too tame, and Michael Eisner wanted to make them a little bit more intense and make them more interesting and compelling. Without being a roller coaster, could it be some kind of simulator where something would happen? And they came up with some other ideas and threw around some things. And at one point, there was this rumor that probably is a, one of these rumors that was just totally false, but about the Imagineers coming up with something that was just much more intense. And uh, one of the Disney executives who went in to preview it actually had a heart attack on the ride, and they had to make a change to it and tweak it down a little bit to make it a little bit less intense. Now, as I said, I think that's probably not true exactly, though I imagine the intensity level probably did, to, did change just a little bit along the way. So keeping the concept of staying within budget and coming up with something that was sort of an alien encounter, they came up with this idea for uh, keeping the room the way it was and making it some sort of a spaceport where they could actually beam someone across the galaxy to some other distant land and bring them to meet an alien. And then the whole thing goes awry and the alien winds up coming into the, into the park. So kind of clever, very you know, innovative in its thought process. And, and the thing about it that's interesting is that it was more intense in the sense of being in your head rather than being intense in the sense of being on a roller coaster. Now, on another podcast, I'll have to do, detail this out some more, but Disney had come up with an innovative technique for providing sound that was all audio cues that made you think that you were actually seeing and feeling exactly what was going on around you. And they demoed that experience over at the, uh, at the studios. If you went into a little booth over by where Sounds Dangerous is, you could hear this entire show. And they coupled it with some special effects like air jets and water and things like that that would really heighten the experience and make it more interesting. So it really was more of a, um, an auditory experience with a little bit of physical sensory experience coming from other things. And the seat would still pan up and down as it did during the, uh, the two attractions previously. And they also came up with this idea of coming up with a harness that would lower down on you, that would lift and lower a little bit just to kind of intensify the effect just a little bit. So clever in, in concept, and it didn't require them to kind of redo the entire show. Now, the other thing they did was they sort of deprived you of the visual. For most of the show, it's dark in there. So it's a little more intense because you can't see anything. You don't know what's going to happen next. And it, it was very clever. And these stories that build up about it being a little too intense kind of built that a little bit. And some of the things they did with the signage that they put outside, that, you know, if you're prone to, prone to heart attacks or, you know, any sort of problems, you should not ride this attraction. Pregnant women should not ride. Uh, you know, uh, people under the age of 12 shouldn't ride without their parents' permission. It was a clever way to kind of build the hype a little bit and make it seem even, even a little more intense than it might have been otherwise. So when they came up with the final idea, it was called the Extraterrestrial Alien Encounter. And the terrestrial was actually spelled with the word terror capitalized in the word. So it really kind of built that hype a little bit more. So they continued to use the theater in the round attraction, where you would sit there and uh, hear the binaural sound coming in, and it would uh, intrigue you. It finally opened in the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World on January 12th of 1995. That's about two years after Mission to Mars had closed. So it really took a long time to get it up and running. Now, they had planned to put this attraction over at Disneyland as well, but due to the testing and the amount of time it took to produce it and the fact that there were some guest experiences, guests were complaining that it was a little too intense, they decided to hold off on putting it at Disneyland for some period of time, and it never actually made it there.
One of the interesting things the Walt Disney Company was doing during the early 1990s was to sort of marry up all of these things that were sort of trendy and topical and having actors and so forth come in and be a part of a Disney attraction. So in the past, it was always people who were known to Disney and sometimes people who were known in the industry, but really who had a limited connection to Disney, but you might recognize them in some way to come in and play parts. So I've talked about Gary Owens in the past, and of course there was Lawrence Dobkin and different people who came along and uh, provided a role in the, in the Disney company. But in the early 1990s, a lot of the shows and attractions featured performers that you would recognize from other venues, just other things that you would see. So for example, in the Extraterrestrial Encounter, Jeffrey Jones was your main host. He was the guy running the show. Now, Jeffrey Jones, you may have recognized as the principal from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, among other films. In one of the pre-show videos, Tyra Banks is actually the person who is presenting the uh, video, but it's actually someone else's voice that you hear, so you may not have recognized Tyra along the way. Tim Curry was the voice of Sir, the simulated intelligent robot, the audio-animatronic character you would see in the pre-show area that used to be where uh, the mission control was. And then later, before the uh, attraction closed, Phil Hartman was used in that same role. The two doctors that you hear talking throughout the show are Kathy Najimi and Kevin Pollack, both people that you would recognize uh, in real life. So kind of interesting that they put these people in there and had them presenting part of the show. Now, the show was set up with a way where you had a couple of pre-show areas. So the first pre-show area is actually the Tomorrowland Interplanetary Convention Center. And that was the main holding area. And you'd stand in there and you'd see a video with, that had a demonstration of the new technology from an alien corporation known as XS Tech. Gotta love the name, XS. The company's chairman, L.C. Clench, and that's actually Jeffrey Jones, sets the attraction's sinister tone by telling you that if something can't be done with XS, then it shouldn't be done at all. Obligation to help 
less fortunate planets upgrade their technologies. Profit is simply a byproduct we've learned to live with. So join with me now, won't you? And together we will seize the future with access. There are some subtle in-jokes that they put in there. Now, as you look around the room, you see a number of different signs and different things that are that are posted. Things like the Tomorrowland Chamber of Commerce presents XS Tech. Then the galaxy's number one authority in technological innovation invites you to experience the latest achievement. Mission to Mars, history or hoax? A nice little subtle reference back to what used to be there. The championship pet show, because when it comes to your space pet, what goes down must not come up. And the Walt Disney Company's Pan-Galactic Stockholders Meeting, which features a holographic transmission of Lunar Disneyland's The Happiest Place Off-Earth. From there, you would leave and go into what was Mission Control at some point. You were greeted by a robot named Simulated Intelligence Robotics, or, or SIR for short. And he presents the practically painless mode of teleportation on Skippy, a little space creature. We would like to make sure that everyone in your group has the opportunity to view the true wonders of excess tech. Thank you. In order to accommodate the various light forms here today, we ask that you proceed all the way across the hall, moving as close as possible to the portrait of our esteemed leader, Molecular 
And of course, he looks charred and disoriented after the event happens. So you get the, the, the implication that the technology is flawed. And finally, you go into the main attraction. And this is the theater in the round again, where you're sitting down, where you used to see the machine space things. What they changed was they put a giant tube in the middle of the uh, theater, so it uh, reached from top to bottom. And you were looking at this tube, and you had these shoulder harnesses that would kind of hold you in place. So you seat, uh, you're seated in the harness... And the uh, plastic cylinder is called the teleportation tube. And Clench and the two excess technicians are there to communicate live from across the galaxy via video screens. Now, initially, a single guest is to be teleported out of the chamber for a meeting with Clench. Instead, Clench is seized by inspiration and decides to have himself teleported to the chamber to meet the entire group. Clench's impatience and the unexpected change of plans caused the teleportation signal to be diverted through an unknown planet, and as a result, a towering, winged, and carnivorous alien is beamed into the tube by mistake. Of course, chaos ensues, and the technicians don't know what to do, and uh, they try to figure it out. The power goes out, so the lights are out, and now you're getting into the, uh, the cerebral part of the show, where they're actually doing something that's stimulating your senses other than your eyesight. So you're not really sure what's going on. You feel the creature drooling on you, all kinds of other things, and they simulate some screams throughout the, uh, the chamber, so that way you don't know who's screaming. And it's kind of cool. Uh, in that sense, it was kind of neat. It was very clever in the use of technology. You feel the alien's breath on your back. Sometimes he drools on you. All these different things are happening to make you think that perhaps the alien is in the room with you. And then when the power finally comes back on with the assistance of uh, two technicians from XS, the ravenous alien is ultimately driven back into the broken teleportation device, but uh, overpowering the tube caused the alien to explode right before the tube closes. Then you're released from your seat while the te technicians bid you goodbye. Disney also added in, like as I said, there were some screams from other places. There were um, pink noise that actually uh, created some sort of 
feeling of disorientation in you as you listened to it because the lights were off. And then you could also hear some heartbeats from around. They kind of amplified that a little bit just to make it a little bit more interesting. And because of the fact you were sitting in a circular theater, they could use some positional things to kind of help make you believe that that's actually uh, happening. They did uh, continue to use the seats as they moved, and the, uh, the shoulder harnesses would move as well. And then also they added in some more subwoofers and some more transducers in each one of the seats to give the illusion that something was actually happening around you. So you could actually feel it and uh, feel vibrations and so forth, as though the creature was kind of walking along next to you. And so what I'd like to do for you now is to play the audio from the attraction. Right. Please. Sure. 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 S
Now, there was a large large amount of music that was actually created for this attraction, too, for the outside part of the attraction. So you had some of the theme music was playing. They created a theme song for Access Technologies, and it kind of worked out that it was really innovative and, and interesting and not, not expected because of the way Mission to Mars used to work in that same location. So it was really kind of a neat experience, and it was kind of kind of interesting, and I thought it really worked out pretty well. The problem was it was always too a little too intense for most children, and, you know, adults kind of got it the first time and then didn't really want to go back because it didn't have that staying power. So that's why the attraction ultimately closed in 2003. And Disney looked for a replacement for it at some point. And on my next podcast, I'll explain that replacement to you and why I think it's kind of substandard given all the creativity that went in before it. And of course, as I mentioned, uh, Disneyland never got this attraction. They tried it at Disney World first and it never really worked the way they wanted it to. Too intense and decided not to take it over to Disneyland. So they, uh, the, that location was closed after Mission to Mars and uh, never reopened as another attraction. Well, that's my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. Now, please exit the moving podcast 
The walkway is moving at the same speed as your podcast. Kindly take small children by the hand and watch your head and step. If you have questions, thoughts, or would just like to ask Dave a question, please send an email to davesdisneyview at gmail.com. You can always find Dave's Disney View on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. Show notes for this podcast can be found on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. Original music you hear in this podcast is courtesy of Sound A Music. You'll find a link to the latest Disney-related autism awareness event on the show notes page. We also encourage you to check out Dave's iPhone apps. There are a couple of Disney-related apps, including a Hidden Mickey's app and a pin trading app. 